Well, you don't need a crowd to have the presence of Jesus. He is here with us. Jesus is here with us. Where two or three, three are gathered, there he is in the midst. And I certainly feel the presence of the Lord among us this morning very, very much, very powerfully. Let's pray in his name. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us that gave us your son, that he would die for us. Jesus, only Jesus. Lord, we come here this morning to hear from Jesus, only Jesus, and to worship him and to praise him and to adore him and to thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we're gathered. It's in his name we're scattered throughout. And Lord, we pray and thank you for the opportunity to freely proclaim the truth, the good news of Jesus Christ. We know, Lord, you are strengthening your church. And I pray, Lord, that we might, um, we might respond accordingly. Lord, help us to be God's people and help us, Lord, to demonstrate God's love. Help us to rest in the peace of Christ. Not peace like the world gives, but the kind of peace that Jesus brings in the midst of trouble and storms and trials. We have the peace of God. And we thank you, Lord. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we'll be receiving a retiring offering this morning. So there's plates at the back, and you can take care of that if you're watching us online. Uh, you can find out how to give online or drop by sometime this week, and we'll uh, gladly receive your offering anytime this week. So come and join us here. Um, This isn't our sermon text this morning, but uh, a text that has been very, very comforting to our family through the years <clears throat> in situations that have been difficult is Psalm 91. And I thought I'd just read a couple of things to you this morning and then share with you some thoughts and share with um, our church family, wherever you are, some thoughts about the moment that we find ourselves in. In Psalm 91, begins this way, and it's powerful. He or she who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Now listen, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. I, I find, and as I said, I've led our family on occasion in this text to find great comfort in uh, difficult times. And um, we want you to know that... Uh, we are seeking here at Calvary 
to honor the Lord and to honor those authorities that are over us uh, that have been put in power by our God. And we believe that it is possible to honor both until such time as it isn't. And then we will choose to honor the Lord and what he says above all because we must obey him. This is not a time for us to criticize other churches on how we decide to navigate this time, nor to criticize each other. These are times where the distinctiveness that God has given us as local churches comes into play. Calvary Baptist Church is a unique expression of the local, or a unique expression locally of a global body of Christ. And in every setting, decisions are made differently based on the individuals that are part of that setting. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that. We've determined at this moment that we want to not only be the church, but do church as long as we can with, um, with care and, and um, to pay attention to the expectations of, of our community in terms of caring for them as well. And so um, that's why we are honoring the kind of threshold numbers that are, are critical right now. And you're certainly socially dis distancing yourselves this morning, which is nice, but only temporarily because social distancing is not a Christian value. It's a temporary emergency procedure. It's not something you carry on for very long. So we need to understand that. We are called to fellowship closely with one another. That's what the church has always done. That's who God's people are. And so um, we, we are functioning uh, strategically uh, based on uh, a particular action plan that really has two steps to it. We want to do the best we can as a congregation, as a community, to, to seek to prevent our community from becoming sick. That's step one. And that's what we're seeking to do. We love people so much. We love our community. We love our church. We love the vulnerable people in our church, the children and the elderly and all that, that God has entrusted to us. And this, these are our priorities. And step two is to do all that we can once our community does become sick to take care of them and help them. These are the two action plan steps of Calvary Baptist Church. And it's a changing landscape we will try to keep you informed as best we can of how we're going to navigate that, but that's going to be our strategy going forward, doing our best to keep them from getting sick and doing the best we can to minister to them when they do become sick. So um, having said that, I trust that you will be praying, and uh, I know you are, and we will seek in every way to bring honor and glory to our Lord as a church family together in the particular way God calls us as Calvary Church to minister in this moment. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 14 or your device or whatever you are, and if you're at home, you can put us on AirPlay and put me on the big screen, the 70-inch or the 90-inch or whatever you have, and uh, that way I can become a televangelist, which is something I've never wanted to be, but... Here it is. Here's the moment. So, 
Mark 14. There is a saying, a slogan, that is generally known, is out there, and it is this. Expectations are premeditated resentments. Expectations are premeditated resentments. This is a very powerful statement for marriage, for instance, and a number of other things, whether it's relationships or friendships, uh, your expectations concerning the service sector, or your expectations as you enter a restaurant or, or a store or wherever you may be, your expectations of your government, your expectations of your leadership, your expectations of your boss at work, your expectations of your pastor. Expectations are premeditated resentments. It becomes extremely critical to the relationship we have with God. And in our world, expectations concerning God are premeditated resentments. Unless we really know who he is. And uh, it seems that our world really breaks down into two types of people. Those whose expectations are completely temporal, locked into this time and this space and this physicality and this material, versus those who have higher expectations and loftier expectations and, and dare to dream that, that God is who he says he is and can deliver on what he says he can deliver on. That's how our world breaks down. And as we make our way toward the countdown to Calvary in our text, Mark 14 and moving forward, we are going to see played out for us this very slogan, expectations are premeditated resentments. There are many people whose expectations of Messiah led them to champion his quick exit to the cross, and not in a good way. There were others who followed him and served him. This morning, we're going to see a bit of a mixture. We're going to see two very bad examples of expectations, and we're going to see one really, really good one. And then we're going to wind it, wrap it up by looking at the end of the text at what God has really done for us in Christ Jesus and what we should expect. So if you bring your own agenda to God, you will, be tra you will tragically miss out on what could have been. I was talking to a young guy right after the service this morning. He was talking about a guy he knows. And the expectations that this guy he knows had of God were keeping him away from God. And that's what happens. When you bring your agenda, instead of opening up your heart to the revealed uh, picture of God in the scriptures, you will miss out on what could have been. So if your Bibles are open, Mark 14. Now, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard or spicknard from India, by the way, 
She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so we are this morning. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one they said to him, surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God. Many people bring their own agendas. There are a variety of agendas. We won't, we won't even touch on the surface of them, but there are people who have a positional enhancement agenda of God. There are those who are careful and calculated in their commitment toward God. There are those who have material and physical expectations of God. There are those who, who have an expectation of ritual and form when it comes to God. There are those who, who um, look at God in a deistic fashion, you know, deism. In other words, God threw this thing together, but then he just backed off and enjoys watching how everything is working itself out. There are all kinds of expectations. And there's uh, Jesus and the presentation that we have in the scriptures of who God really is. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father in heaven. Many people can't see who Jesus really is because they are blinded by their own agenda-driven emotions. Just about every type surfaced on the way to Calvary. And by the way, the divisions came, violent, became violently wicked, horribly wicked. We'll examine two of those very wicked 
uh, results. And one really good one, as I said, and then we'll look at the realignment of our expectations as we look at what Christ has done for us. So the first one is this. When Jesus threatens, it's the first two verses in chapter 14. When Jesus threatens your preferred position, it demonstrates what hate does. These were the religious leaders. It says here, now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. This was the holiday season in Jerusalem. It came around every year. If we could get some sort of picture of it in, in our context, if you could put Christmas and Easter and Victoria Day, and, and if we had an Independence Day, it would be, be very appropriate to insert it right here. And we put all of those together in one massive festival event, that would be the Passover. That would be what the Passover was like. It was a grand, grand event as people came together and every year they remembered what God had done for them, in this case, 1,300 years. They've been celebrating this for over 1,000 years, God's deliverance of Israel out of the slavery to Egypt. And they would come together and remember at the Passover, based on that word, Passover, how God had delivered them. And they would celebrate, and it was a great time of, of national fervor. They were excited about their country all over again, the people of Israel. And they would remember how, how uh, God had rescued them out of Egypt in, in the judgment that he had, he had, uh, had uh, placed on Egypt, and the particular, the last the last judgment of the death of the firstborn because they wouldn't let Israel leave Egypt. And God had said to his people through Moses, if they, were to take, if they would sacrifice a lamb and if they would take and put the blood over the doorposts of their homes, when the angel of death comes over Egypt, he will pass over the homes when he sees the blood of the lamb. And they remembered that. And it was an ongoing for 1,000, for 1,300 years, an ongoing remembrance of the good hand of God to deliver them and to rescue them. But the promise of Messiah. This is what Passover was. It was the promise of Messiah. He would come and there would be a lamb of God who would be the final sacrifice and take away their sin. And so there was this messianic fervor every Passover and the expectation, the irony of this is Jesus, the Messiah, was there, was among them. The, the dreams that they had, the expectations and hopes of deliverance were right there in flesh and blood in Jerusalem with them. And they couldn't see him. The religious leaders who were supposed to be leading the people to see the truth of Messiah were misleading the people because of their own expectations and their own preferred positions. We have this incredible event that's going on. In fact, um, to give you some idea of the scope of it, historians tell us that the size, the population of Jerusalem during Passover would swell two or three times the population. Every male head of the household of Israel had to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to represent his family at Passover. 30 years after Jesus was resurrected and was already, had already gone into heaven, they were still celebrating Passover. Nero, at the time, the emperor Nero, asked the high priest of the time if there was any possibility that they could 
eliminate Passover? Can we just get rid of Passover? Because it was a tremendous pressure on Rome. They had to bring in all kinds of garrisons of soldiers and, and everything because the people were heightened. There was, there was easy time of rioting. They were looking for Messiah. There were factions conflicting with each other. It didn't take much to set things off. That's why the priests here said, we better not do anything to Jesus right now or a riot will break out. In fact, they had, to, they had to bring the governor of, of, of Palestine, they had to take him from his palace in, in, in Caesarea and move him to Jerusalem during the time of Passover. That's why Pilate was in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion, because of this heightened sense of Messiah expectation expectancy, all of that, and, and yet the tension that existed because they wanted to be set free from Rome. And, and when Nero asked, can we get rid of Passover, the high priest said, well, let me give you some idea of the scope of what's going on here in Jerusalem. During Passover, 256,500 lambs in 65 AD were sacrificed in Jerusalem. 256,500 lambs. Now, each of those households represented a minimum of 10 family members. These, these family members were expected to feast on their Passover lamb after it had been sacrificed. That means that we're talking minimum over 3 million people involved in Passover. In other words, the high priest was saying to Nero, you really think you want to tackle this thing? This thing is huge. It's big. This is what we dealt with here. And so arriving in Jerusalem, their plan for Messiah was not a reformer Messiah, but a liberating Messiah from Rome. This is what they were looking for. But Jesus was going to be a reformer Messiah, one who would come in and rescue them from their sins, not from Rome, one who was going to shut down the temple because he was the temple, one who was going to do away with their, their jobs because they were no longer faithful to God. So they looked for a sly way to kill him. It seemed to never occur to these high priests whose function was to to encourage God's people to follow the laws of God, it seemed to not occur to them that their, de their decision to slay, to, to murder Jesus, was a breaking of the holy commandment number six. So low had they become in their qualifications to lead spiritually that they were going to break the commandment. What they didn't want is a Passover that would be repurposed by the real Messiah who had come not to liberate them from Rome and to lift up their jobs, but rather to liberate them from, their, from the leaven of the high priest Sanherod. That's what Jesus had already said in Mark chapter 8, verse 15. He said, beware of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees. Do you realize what Jesus was saying? Leaven was the symbol of sin. Jesus is literally calling Herod and the high priests and the religious leaders sin. So this is why they wanted to kill him. They hated him because of their preferred position. In contrast to that, though, in verse, verse 3 to 9, we see an entirely different perspective, entirely different expectation of Messiah. We encounter a woman. 
another way to live. Rather than entitlement and expectations that are premeditated resentments, we see here how it is possible to live with gratitude toward God. When Jesus is your life, this is what love does. The contrast that Mark places right here is intentional. It's the, the story is picked up well in John chapter 12. We learn a lot about what goes on here that Mark doesn't mention in John 12. And I'll just say to you that it's the home of Simon the leper. But John makes it abundantly clear that the woman who drops this perfume on Jesus' head is none other than the Mary that we know. This is none other than Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. And Simon the leper must be the head of the house. That must be the name of their father or perhaps their grandfather who handed down this house. And houses were known by the name of the patriarch. This is Simon the leper's house. This is new information to us, but we know from John that it was Mary. Mary who loved Jesus. And in a moment of sheer, unbridled, impulsive extravagance, she empties a year's wage worth of perfume on Jesus' head. 300 denarii. It was the custom of the time that a common worker would make about one denarii a day. So this flask of perfume was worth uh, a whole year's wages. Can you imagine? Just think of your own year's wages and think of just cracking open a flask and just pouring it on Jesus' head. That's extravagant love for Jesus. Not calculated, not wondering, you know, can we afford this? Might we need this money? Should we save this for a rainy day? I mean, the, the stock market is tanking. Should we be saving up our money? No, no, Mary just pours it on Jesus' head. And Jesus interprets us, it for us by saying, she did a beautiful thing for me. She's actually anointing me for my burial. She doesn't really know all that she's doing, but that's precisely what she's doing. After all, the disciples were going to be MIA when it came to need, Jesus needing to be anointed after he died. Everybody was going to cut and run. This was his anointing for his burial. Here you have a common woman anointing the anointed one. That's what Christ means. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one. That was what the religious leaders were supposed to do. That was supposed to be their sensitivity. They were supposed to recognize Messiah and anoint him as Messiah. And here you have a woman sensitive to know who she has in her midst, a common woman. The audience, of course, is oozing here with hypocrisy. Love for Jesus, by the way, beloved, does not count the cost. It's extravagant. And there's plenty of critics to go around when you're extravagant toward the Lord. And this room of disciples was no exception. Imagine those who claim to be the frontliners with Jesus, the ones who claim to love him most, are being shown up by this woman. And it, we, we find out in John that kind of Judas was the, the ringleader of this because it says there he was a treasurer and enjoyed uh, putting his money in the treasury box and padding his own uh, fortune. And here was a year's wages of perfume that he claims could have been sold and given to the poor. It sounds oh so spiritual, doesn't it? 
He was intending to use the proceeds of that money for himself. Mary was spiritually tender. We know that because she sat at Jesus' feet. She was particularly spiritually sensitive toward Jesus. This would have been a really harsh moment for her. Because she would have been looking at these disciples as, hey, these are the, these are the, the leaders of the movement of, of, of Christianity. And, and here I am being rebuked by them. It would have been very hurtful to her. She would have wondered, have I done a, a spiritually wrong thing? Have I, have I, have I misstepped? Have I stepped out of line here? And that's why Jesus steps in very quickly to comfort her and to rebuke them and say, wait a second, why are, you, why are you rebuking her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. God takes note of your extravagant love, by the way. He steps in. You see, the problem is with works-based people is they're always counting the cost. How much do I need to give to gain God's favor? What's the, what's the least that I can do to to gain favor with God. And when I do, I realize, hey, God now owes me. You see, this is the kind of heart that doesn't lavish love on God because God owes me. I've paid for my favor with God. He now should be helping me. I, I don't need to be gr grateful to him. That's the difference between grace and works. When you recognize that everything that we have that is good from God has come on the basis of grace, there's nothing we can do but thank him and praise him and be grateful to him and lavish our love on him. But a workspace person has forgotten how to love God because they've forgotten what love looks like because God owes them. Jesus demonstrates that God looks for this. Christ loves a cheerful heart, as one writer puts it, a cheerful giver, not a careful one. From 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And in this mess of human emotion, she lavishes love on Christ. Now what, was Christ suggesting that the poor are not important or that we shouldn't be looking after the poor? That's not it at all. You know, Judas was trying to, we know it was Judas was the ringleader. Judas was trying to actually point a finger at Jesus and saying, you're the hypocrite, not me. You're the one who's told us that we should be looking after the poor. And look what you're doing. You're accepting a year's worth of perfume just being poured on your head. By the way, she broke the flask and left. In the burial ritual, it was, you would pour the perfume on the body and then you would leave the flask, broke, the broken flask there. It's very symbolic what she did here. Jesus makes a few points about the poor that are very particular and very important for us to notice. He says to them, you, the poor are always here. You could have been looking after the poor. What's with all of a sudden today you're so interested in looking after the poor? What about yesterday? Why didn't you look after the poor yesterday? Why didn't you look after the poor a week ago? Why, why is it today you're so interested in the poor? The poor are always with you. Go help them. Not only that, he's making the point to them, you, there shouldn't, this is an indictment of Jesus as well. There, there shouldn't even be poor among you. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, this is what the word of God says. Deuteronomy 15 verse 4, however, there should be no poor among you. Now listen. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only 
you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. In other words, the reason that there are poor among you is because you haven't been obeying the Lord. There would have been rich bounty, rich blessings from God. There would have been overflow, over abundance. No one would have been poor in, in Israel. But you chose to sin and disregard God. The fact that there's poor among you is an indictment of your failures to honor the Lord. And he says to them, sadly, there will always be poor among you, so care for them. But note this, this moment that Mary is commemorating, is recognizing, is the most critical moment of all for the poor, that I go and die on a cross of Calvary and am raised again, is good news to the poor. We get to preach the gospel of good news to the poor. It will not always be like this. Eternity waits for you. The riches of God's blessing belong to you, are bountiful. When Jesus is your salvation, when Jesus is the one you recognize, you lavish him with love. There's, then there's the contrast here in verses 10, 11. And we go back, we went from hate to love, now we go to greed. When Jesus interferes with your material addictions, this is what greed does. Judas counters her extravagance by placing a cheap price on the head of Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. He looks for an opportunity to sell him out, to sell his friend out, to sell his teacher, who he's been with for three years, who's been looking after them. He looks for an opportunity to sell him at a cheap price. And the price is the cost of a, of a spent servant who's no longer any good to you. 30 pieces of silver. It's like, it's like going to a cattle auction and, and getting rid of one of your, one of your cattle that is, is, has gone past its best before date. That's the level with which he sold Jesus. And Jesus is, by the way, neither a cash cow nor available to be used as an expected means to material ends. But that's who he was, is to Jesus or to Judas. Loved ones, listen. If you find yourself bristling at all at extravagant love, you may be in danger of being a Judas. You may be a razor thin close to selling him out yourself. When Jesus didn't measure up to Judas' expectations of health and wealth, he put him on the auction block and sold him to the cheapest bidder. There's something very wrong about Judas. There's something very wrong about people who know who Jesus is and then turn around and sell him out. This was never about Jesus as far as Judas was concerned. It was always about him. And if you can't lavish love on Jesus, maybe it's just because it's all about you and not about him. There's a final section here that I want to cover with you, and that is when Jesus is your salvation. This whole section is what God's love is. We've seen what hate does. We've seen what love does. We've seen what greed does. Now we're going to look at what God's love is. The Passover, by the way, is entirely fulfilled in Christ. That they were still practicing the Passover 30 years after is lunacy is clear evidence that they missed the coming of Messiah. The fact that Passover still exists today is completely wrong. Jesus entirely fulfilled Passover. The Passover festival is done. Praise the Lord. 
Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. Jesus is the end of sacrifice. Jesus is the lamb of God. I'll tell you what God's love is not. God's love is not pampering permissive love. God does not look down upon us like the deist suggests from heaven and watch people fold their arms in saucy rebellion and boldly and and obnoxiously do anything that they think they want to do and then expect that God looks down and pats them on the head and gives them a big cuddle and says, oh, those are my kids, they're okay. That's not how God is viewing sin at all. In fact, the Passover and Calvary give us the picture of what God really sees when he sees sin. I hope you paid attention to the numbers I shared with you of the number of lambs that were slaughtered in Israel in 65 AD. A quarter of a million lambs. Now, each father of the household was expected to take an unblemished lamb and take it to the temple. That's why you had the shepherds uh, abiding, keeping watch over their flocks in Bethlehem near Jerusalem. They were selling unblemished lambs to people who had to come and sacrifice the best. There's great symbolism going on in the whole Christmas event, but we can't go there. We got to come back to this. But they were bringing unblemished lambs. That was what was required. And every father of every household would have to come to Jerusalem with his lamb in representing his family, representing the sins of his family. And that father would have to go to the temple and go to the altar, and he would have to slay the lamb himself. And he would have to cut the throat of the lamb, and the blood had to drain. And it was spurting. And anybody who knows anything about this, this was a quarter of a million lambs. On Passover day at the altar, this place was a bloody mess, representative of the horror and outrage of sin and what it does. Sin causes death. Sin ruins everything. Sin messes up everything. And the the weight of the visual came to the leader of the house who would go back and he would take that lamb and they would eat it out of the goodness and blessing of God, recognizing the cost of their sin. And then you have the lamb of God who hangs on the cross and his blood flows for you and for me as a substitute for the mess of our sin. Look on Calvary and then answer the question, is our God a permissive God who winks at sin and doesn't care what everybody does? He absolutely cares. A holy God cannot look upon sin. A holy God cannot have sin in his presence. A holy God requires a sin, a, a sin offering of blood representing Death comes by sin. And just like in the Passover, Christ, the new Passover, the Passover repurposed, the Passover lamb, we take his blood and we receive it and we put it on the walls of our heart. And when God sees Jesus' blood on our heart, he passes over. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the picture of Passover. That's what's going on here. And here we have in this great, uh, um, great example, great visual of God's care and love for us, a betrayer in their midst. And Jesus 
That night of Passover was no festal celebration with those guys. It says here in, in, in the verse at 19, they were saddened because someone was going to sell out Jesus from the 12. Jesus uses the phrases, one of you, one of the 12, one of those who dips in the same bowl as me in friendship and love and brotherhood is going to sell me out. That's unheard of. That's unthinkable in an Eastern culture. It's unthinkable that, that an enemy would be in your midst and would be sharing your meal with you and would have in his mind that I'm going to betray you. That's just not done. There's no level of wickedness beyond this. That's why the Apostle Paul in his communion section stresses on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took blood. If that could be in font 18 or font 20 or font 42, capitals, that's what Paul is saying here. On the night he was betrayed, Christ gives his life for us because we were all betrayers of Christ. Jesus connects the meal elements to his suffering and his death. And in the text, they all, one after another, repeat, surely not I, surely it's not me, surely I'm not the one selling you out, Jesus. Surely I won't betray you. In Psalm 41, 9, it says, the very, very one who shared bread with me is the one who betrayed me. Now the wording here is, it is not I, is it? And the idea is this expectation of negative. Even Judas says the same thing. Jesus says, this is my body. He gives them the element of bread. He gives them the element of wine that they might remember about the poured out blood of Jesus Christ that covers us, our sinfulness. And in the Passover and in communion, there is sight, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching. That we might never forget how horrible our sin is and how marvelous His grace is to cover our sins. Not because we deserve it, but because He loves us. His favor his grace. I think it's important that we recognize that Judas was one of the ones who said, it is not I, is it? I'm sure sometime during the three years that Judas walked with Jesus, he wrestled with the idea of of all those around who wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And I'm sure that he somehow resolved in his own heart, I would never be one who would defect from Jesus. I, I'm one of the insiders. I'm with him. I, I travel with him. I listen to his teaching. I, I sit down every time he shares his teaching and I listen to it. I think the great tragedy and horror of this story and, and um, warning of this story is that 
it would never occur to any of us that we would ever betray our Lord, that we would ever sell him out, that we would ever be a defector. But there are warnings. There are warnings in the text. Don't ever take lightly your disappointment with God over expectations. You may be on the way out. And don't ever take for granted your lack of extravagance toward Jesus. If you're counting the cost and calculating your commitment all the time, you may be on the way out. And never take for granted your preoccupation with all of the other things that are going on in life, particularly as you sit in a service or you're paying attention to a service like this. And you're spending more time thinking about what you're going to do after the service than you are about what you're learning at the service. When you're spending more time examining your watch than you are examining your heart, you might be on the way out. One of you here today, possibly, one of you listening today, might betray our Lord and defect and be gone. Take nothing, never ever take your heart for granted or the things of God. Draw near to God all the time, and he will draw near to you. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your incredible grace. Lord, I, I don't know, there just aren't words that really are appropriate from hearts that have been so graced by you through Christ's agony and suffering and dying as he hosted that Passover, knowing full well what he was going to do and resolved to do it in the context of betrayal. It's hard, Lord, to imagine how much you loved us. But Father, we recognize that we are here today because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus that you would die on the cross to be the substitute for our sinfulness, that by believing in you, we could have eternal life, our sins forgiven, that our heart could be covered with the righteousness of Christ, and God's judgment will pass over us. Lord, for this, we are eternally grateful. May our lives reflect extravagance, Lord, an extravagant love towards you. We know it catches your attention. So, Father, I pray this morning, wherever the church is, near and far, that we will, with great gratitude, recommit our lives to the service of our great King and Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. What the disciples didn't realize that night is that that was the last night that they would be with Jesus before he was crucified and taken from them. And so he gave them a visual, left us a visual of a reminder that 
Jesus, who was visibly present with them, was going to be leaving. And his presence would be with them invisibly in the Holy Spirit. And he left these emblems to remind us that Jesus is with us and to remember what he has done for us. And he took basic things like bread, which was the symbol of, 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 of uh, life and feeding, that he is the bread of life. The most basic of living is found in bread. It was unleavened bread, of course, because sin had to be taken away. So that every time his disciples down through the ages would break bread, they would connect it to his suffering and his broken body and remember what Jesus has done by the grace of God for us. And he left us a cup. See, um, wine is the blood of a crushed grape poured out to remind us that Jesus' blood was poured out for us and poured over our hearts so that we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ and God sees us in that righteousness. All for us. So, beloved, if you are here and you don't know the Lord as your Savior, during these troubled times, this is a good day for the day of salvation in your life. Come and meet with one of our pastoral staff. We'll be here at the front. We'd love to help you come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And in the meantime, live a life of extravagant love for Jesus, remembering that he suffered and he died, that we might live forever with Christ. Father, thank you so much. It, it is a great comfort to us to know what you did for us so that we no longer have to face the judgment of God for our sins have been forgiven. Our lives have been rescued. A far greater deliverance has taken place than a deliverance from, our, uh, from politics and hardship. Oh, a far greater deliverance has happened for us. We are freed to serve you and love you extravagantly now and for all eternity. May you help us as the church, Lord, to reach lives during these fearful times with a message of peace and comfort and rescue. For I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.